Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, how do you feel about the Empire State Building being lit up for the Philadelphia Eagles? I mean, I I, I think it's an outrage. Uh, Yeah. You know, first of all, as you know, these Northeastern sports rivalries are a real thing. Yeah, I I hate the Eagles. Yeah, I I hate Philadelphia sports teams. I hate everything about them. And then also as a Jets fan... They turned on the Jets setting. Those are your colors. Yeah, those are our colors. And <laughs> guess how many times the Jets have been in the Super Bowl in my lifetime? No, Zero, uh, okay? No, so I just good. don't, I, we just, you know, light up the, whatever the medium-sized building in Philadelphia that's the tallest building, light that one up. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, I, I enraged all of uh, the state of Pennsylvania over the weekend because I made a joke about Yinzers. And I, in my head, I knew they're from uh, Pittsburgh, a Yinzers the best accent ever. YouTube it if you want. Someone from Pittsburgh. I kind of thought you could be Yinzer if you were from like the collar counties of Philly. So I made a joke. Just got torn up. So I had to do a notes app apology. I mean, I, look, I, I like, it's like a, it, it's a friendly rivalry except when it comes to sports. Like that's, that's an unfriendly rivalry. Yeah, no, no. I want all Philly fans to suffer. Uh, I like Pittsburgh. They're nice. And we beat them all the time. Okay. Now that we've turned off everyone who listens, uh, we got a great show today then. We are going to talk about and is uh, reportedly an Israeli attack on Iran. I think we can just say it was an Israeli attack on Iran. <laughs> Nobody's, not, not exactly denials on that one. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah. yeah. Uh, there was a uh, horrible spate of violence in Israel and the West Bank. And then Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, went to Israel uh, for meetings right afterwards. There are big problems and bad leaders in the United Kingdom. Uh, we'll explain a little more there. Ukraine's newest military request. Congress in the classified document storage mess keeps growing. Twitter and free speech, protests in Peru, and some updates from Ethiopia, uh, Tigray specifically, Brazil, Australia, and Saudi Arabia. And then I talk with uh, Yanti Toretto from Save the Children, which is an amazing organization providing relief to children, families all around the world about her recent trip to Afghanistan, where she had nine meetings with the Taliban. Yeah. Trying to get the Taliban to allow women to work for NGOs again in Afghanistan so that these groups can actually do their work and, you know, prevent a massive famine. Very interesting to hear that. Uh, everybody should, you know, support Save the Children however you can. And uh, this is, you know, we need to not look away from what's happening to the women of Afghanistan. Yeah. And, you, do that. you know, and one of the most damning things she said, Ben, was uh, that it's just it's now safer for their whole in-country team now that the war is over than it was before. And I think we all knew that. That was one of the best arguments, I think, for the U.S. getting out of Afghanistan was that your average civilian would be safer. But just what an indictment of 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. And and bleaker for women, which was the bright spot of what had been accomplished in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. good point. Okay, let's start uh, with this strike in Iran. Lots of news out of Israel this week, but this was uh, the most recent. So 
Israel reportedly attacked an Iranian military facility with several small drones. The Wall Street Journal suggested that they were going after something called the Iran Space Research Center, which helps develop uh, Iran's ballistic missiles. The New York Times reported this was done by the Mossad, the top intel agency in Israel. U.S. officials say they did not know about this strike in advance, even though CIA Director Bill Burns was in Israel last week. I bet she was a little bit pissed off about that one. Yeah, well, we'll unpack this Or you think might yeah, be yeah, denying yeah. it. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this was the first uh, Israeli attack inside Iran since Bibi Netanyahu came back to office. The previous coalition government did a bunch of attacks like this with these little drones. Uh, the Iranians claim they shot down most of the quadcopter drones, but some, some of them sure seemed to be on fire based on the videos I saw. Ben... Here's a quote I saw in the Wall Street Journal that jumped out at me that I wanted to run by you. Quote, this is a smart trifecta where Israel can hurt Iran, help Ukraine, and not risk its strategic interests in Syria, said Mark Dubowitz, chief executive officer of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I should note that the New York Times uh, said that this Israeli strike had nothing to do with Iran's support for Russia. That makes sense. Israel has pointedly refuse to give Ukraine any weapons because they don't want to piss Russia off because Russia lets them bomb stuff in Syria. It's that complicated. But it sure seems like the Iran hawks are excited to have a new argument for the war they've always wanted with Iran. Yeah, I guess I'll come back to that quote because I don't want to start with it. I mean, first of all, what's happened is interesting because um, you could say, well, this is the new government in Israel and they're this kind of hard right government. But the reality is like the Israelis have been moving this direction for uh, some time now. Like yeah. the previous government set in motion some of the these Bennett's folks did strikes it yeah, inside of Iran. And what we saw over the years in the Obama years is a huge Israeli willingness to hit Iranian targets in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq. And increasingly, first under Bennett and clearly continuing under this administration, um, they include Iran in that, you know. Uh, so... The same kind of Israeli practice of something might just go blow up uh, somewhere um, if we don't like it now applies to Iranian territory. And, and that that's one, a one might call that starting a war or, you know, that there is a war that's been happening been in the happening region. And years. now the war is coming to Iran. And yes, yeah. this could escalate because Iran in its reprisals in the past, Iran has sometimes hit back at Israeli targets outside of Israel, you know, and uh now we could see Iranian reprisals in Israel. And yes, you could see the path escalation very quickly. That's one one point to make is just we're in a new phase of this conflict between Israel and Iran. The second thing is the U.S. piece of this. Um, now, in the past, the Israelis often wouldn't tell the U.S. in advance, um, in part because then the U.S. kind of owns what they did. You and know? we might try to talk them out of it. Or we might try to talk them out of it or... You know, it just makes life difficult for us. And so what they might do hypothetically in this instance, and I don't know what they did in this instance, but it's to notify the U.S. kind of either concurrent to the action or right after. Or like, hey, batten down the hatches or at maybe your right before. Yeah, or something exactly. Because, like yeah. you know, some shit might go on and, hey, yeah. this is already happening. You can't stop it, but we're just giving a heads up. Right. And, and so I, my sense from the outside is that this was in that category. Like whether they told the U.S. before or kind of concurrently, it did seem like there was some notification that took place. I was surprised at how fast this was like confirmed. <laughs> like this was usually- you know, you know, Ronan Bergman at the New York Times has the story in like 15 minutes. So did the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. I mean, it used to be, you know, way back when, again, without getting into anything, 
that we knew, like there were Iranian scientists that would get assassinated, you know, and months later, there might be some story about it, like it, whether Israel was involved or something. Now it's like something blows up in the middle of an Iranian city and there's like a New York Times There's like story. a press plan. <laughs> the, They're yeah. calling up the reporters. Exactly. Yeah. Clearly, they wanted it out. The U.S. wanted to put out that the U.S. didn't do it, but Israel did not mind it being known to the entire world that we blew up something inside of Iran in, in a major city. So that's the second point. Third point is, as a matter of strategy, if this is targeting the nuclear program, I just don't think it works. I mean, uh, you know, all the meetings I was in for many years, the Iranians know how to conduct the nuclear fuel cycle. Like they have that knowledge. They have the raw materials inside of uh, Iran to do this. And so- if got you're, a mountain bunker they've in got, which to do it. Well, that's the thing is, you know, you may pick off a scientist here or blow up a building here. That just drives their program like deeper underground and incentivizes them to develop a covert nuclear weapons capability. So I, I've just I've never been persuaded that you're going to like somehow stop the Iranian nuclear program with like kamikaze drone strikes, you know, that kind of mow the grass, you know, before Iran can replace that capability. And to the Dubovitz point, that makes no sense. How is Russia weaker the day after that strike. It's just totally made it's up argument. It's complete bullshit. Why is this in the newspaper? I don't know. Like, what? What? what is, like, it's pure propaganda. Like, it, like even if you think that it, it makes sense for Israel to have, to respect no borders and to do whatever it takes to degrade the Iranian nuclear program, however they can, to say somehow that, like, Russia lost, like, it's a trifecta, it makes no sense. Like right. Ru- Russia's still getting Iranian drones. Like they didn't blow up the drone factory for that. Right. Just because you, you target some element of the Iranian sort of security establishment doesn't mean that's somehow harming the Russian effort. It's just such a simplistic formulation. It's a, what What is Israel concerned about in this instance? Like to, to look at it from the Israeli perspective, it's the nuclear program, yeah, right? And, and ballistic missiles. It's not the Iranian protesters and it's not the drones going to Russia. It's the ballistic missile program and the nuclear program. So- what what this does tell me is that there's a new political argument being constructed around a potential war in Iran, which is, well, they're allies with Russia, so like now we should take them out. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Secretary of State Tony Blinken is visiting Israel in the West Bank as we speak. That trip got complicated in a hurry, too. Yeah. The trip comes after this horrible spate of violence that has killed dozens of people on both sides. This cycle is seemingly endless, so it's very hard. Like, I hate trying to say this is what started it because you could go back so far. But some key recent events, I mean, there was an Israeli military raid uh, in the West Bank, I believe, that killed 10 Palestinians. Then a Palestinian gunman shot and killed seven people outside a synagogue in East Jerusalem, just a horrible terrorist attack. The next day, a 13-year-old, a Palestinian, reportedly shot two Israelis in East Jerusalem, There's also been reports of a wave of violence and vandalism by Israeli settlers against Palestinian communities in videos suggesting that these settlers are being protected as they do this by Israeli soldiers. So stepping back a bit, like the New York Times said 170 Palestinians were killed by the Israeli military in 2022 and that 30 Israelis and foreigners were killed last year by Palestinians. So it's just like an intolerable level of violence. So the big question is, what does the new Israeli coalition do in response? So far, 
uh, Netanyahu pledged to expedite gun licenses for Israeli citizens and carry out more arrests against Palestinians. There's also demands by even more right-wing coalition members like Itmar Ben-Gavir to enact uh, collective punishment against Palestinian communities by maybe arresting the relatives of Palestinian attackers or sealing and destroying their homes. That's something that already happens a lot. Uh, you know, terrorist homes, family homes get destroyed. There's also talk of stripping the residency and citizenship rights of the families of Palestinian attackers. So last thing I saw then was Tony's public remarks with uh, the PA leadership was to urge calm and he announced, I think like $50 million in assistance. Not a lot. The, the, the stepping back, like the backdrop here is that there hasn't really been a peace process in what, 2014? Like there's no real like talks happening. No. Bibi didn't even say, Netanyahu didn't even say two-state solution. No, he doesn't believe in two-state <laughs> During his yeah, yeah, press yeah. event with Tony, yeah. he said uh, workable solution. Yeah. Um, the Palestinians have cut off security cooperation since this recent IDF raid that killed all those people. What do you think Tony can or should even be pushing for here? Well, first of all, what Tony was saying and what the U.S. government is saying is the same thing we would have said ten years ago or twenty years ago, mm-hmm. and that that's a, a problem, you know. Yeah. And and look, I it, I'm not putting that on an individual Tony Blinken. Um, no, it's a U.S. policy. It's U.S. policy, but the problem is the policy is more and more stale, right? So the U.S. talks about a two-state solution. Nobody believes that's possible, right? Right now, like the Israeli government is avowedly against a two-state solution. And, and the Palestinians don't believe it's going to happen. The so, Palestinian Authority has no moral authority. Yeah, Abbas so, has no moral. So authority. we have to say that Tony has to say that because, like, and it, I think it's worth saying that that that's the preferred outcome, just so that that doesn't disappear from the 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 universe. But um, let's be honest that that's there's no process that's going to get us there anytime soon, if at all. The other thing is to talk, particularly after like a horrific shooting, terrorist attack, you know, outside a synagogue, to talk about the. Palestinian authorities need to be a security partner. And the, here's the problem with this. Like, Palestinian Authority has been a security partner for Israel for many years. But the way in which the Israeli government approaches them is like they're almost like a subcontractor. You know, like like we, we give them some money and therefore they then have to kind of help the Israeli government provide security in the West Bank. But then they get humiliated repeatedly by the Israeli government that then also does nothing to deal with settler violence and the displacement of Palestinians and and the air of impunity that has grown up around the kind of violence you talk about that has killed many Palestinians. And so that's not a solution either because the Palestinian Authority like has lost credibility with the people in the West Bank and the people in East Jerusalem. They the, the idea of just leaning on them, it used to be the deal was, hey, you need to prove that you can be a security partner to the Israeli government because that's kind of training wheels. And I know that sounds very disrespectful, but honestly, I think this was the mentality to become a state. You know, you have to show that you can provide security in the West Bank and as as a part of this pathway to you becoming a state. Well, nobody thinks that that's what's happening now. So now you're just asking the Palestinian Authority that has been discredited largely uh, some some of their own actions, but also largely because of Israeli government actions to do this for you. That's not going to work. At the end of the day, if they're not willing to say that there's going to be some conditionality in the U.S. relationship with the Israeli government. You know, if, if you continue to displace Palestinians, you continue to have impunity around violence against Palestinians, we're going to condition some assistance so that it's not going to settlements or we're not going to block every investigation uh, or every action in the international community. 
that allows you to do this with impunity, unless you're willing to put that on the table, nothing is going to change. And this is just going to be a tinderbox. It gets worse. And, and so the only thing I can think of that is different is if the U.S. communicates to the Israeli government, if you do certain things like we are going to withdraw certain support that we provide for you, if that's not on the table, I don't really know what to say. Like there, there's, you know, there's yeah. not much else to be done and, and, here. And I think the could get worse point is really the key because there are people on both sides who want tensions to be inflamed, right? There are there are terrorists and extremists. Yeah, Hamas would love tensions Hamas, to be inflamed. Hamas, Hezbollah, yeah. they want to- Hezbollah, sure. You know, they want to launch a bunch of rockets. And then there are super, super right-wing ultra-Orthodox uh, forces in this new coalition that want another excuse to annex the West Bank yeah. or further crack down uh, on you know Palestinians in East Jerusalem, or change some of these laws. Like I saw the yeah. other one, the nationality. The, they can just deport people that are you know their families yeah, involved. Yeah. You know, yeah, like it's just the, which is collective punishment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, 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 the concept of which is against international law. Yeah. right. Like collective punishment is and 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 and, and yet if if we are if the U.S. government is going to block any international criminal proceeding against Israel, then international law doesn't seem to apply, right? I mean, that's what I keep coming back to. And so is is there a burden on the Palestinians? Absolutely. I just- well, and about, the, the PA needs to hold an election, right? A, a boss, yeah, when's yeah. the last time a, a boss actually I just think the PA is like, we treat them like a, like a government. They're, no, it's a joke. They're, 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 they're not joke. at they're this joke. point. Uh, it's a mess. It's a very, very difficult. I don't. What do you? Do. I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think we could be doing differently? Uh, listen, I mean, I tried to push Derek Chalet into this a little bit when I interviewed him, Pot Save America. I mean, you and I spent uh, a good part of the 2020 presidential primary trying to get yeah. candidates to see if they would condition aid to Israel if that money went towards uh, annexing, annexing the West Bank. Yeah. And I think you're right. There needs to be some sort of stick. And I also think that I'm hoping they're raising concerns about U.S. taxpayer dollars going to IDF units that then protect Israeli settlement communities that beat the shit out of Palestinians. I mean, or, or trash their land yeah. or burn their farms. That's what, that's what, what's uncomfortable here is like, first of all, we couldn't even get beyond uh, like uh, Bernie and- um, We I, got a couple. We got a couple. Like Pete Buttigieg actually kind of got there, but yeah. then- Klobuchar was uh, like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Biden, but, Biden wouldn't even talk to us. But the like, idea of like, if it's that hard to just say annexation? So, so basically the inverse of that is like, you're fine funding at the tune of $4 billion a year, the annexation of the West Bank. If that's too too hard to get to, I don't know how you're going to deal with the situation where this is kind of boiling of the frog that's happening, where it's like displacing the Palestinians here, provoking them here, like changing the laws. What we're seeing is a slow motion annexation. And Palestinian people feeling totally hopeless yeah. and losing their historic benefactors in places like Saudi Arabia, where Mohammed bin Salman could not give less of a shit about the Palestinian no. people. And and if I'm in Israel, what worries me, like from an Israeli security standpoint, is like, where does this lead? Uh, is, is this going to make Israel more secure? Because at some point, the this is a like a brush fire that could catch. And yeah. if you have an intifada, you know, that's not good for anybody. No, um, it's horrible. Least of all the Israeli people. I mean, that, that, that you don't want to see anything like what we saw in Jerusalem. Yeah, so. especially for the vast majority uh, of Israeli citizens who are moderate and want nothing to do with this current just, government. Just want to be safe, yeah, yeah. Like, I, which I get. Like, like they just want to be safe. Like, and, but, but yeah, I, 
I'm sure that the administration wants to talk about other things. You and I, I'm sure, would like to talk about other things. But the reason we're talking about this is this is like between the Iran stuff and what's happening in the West Bank and in Jerusalem and, and the nature of this Israeli government and the protest in Israel against what they're trying to do. Like, this is going to be a big issue for the next couple of years. Absolutely. And look, neither of us is getting a fellowship at the Carr Center for Human Rights <laughs> no, at Harvard no, no, University no, after that conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that people, and I'm sure no one will excerpt this yeah. and use it against us. Okay, let's turn to the UK for a minute, Ben, because they're having a very hard time over there. First of all, the National Health Service is pretty close to failing. The There was a report by the Royal College of Emergency Medicine that said in December, as many as 500 patients per week were dying because of wait times at the emergency room. Ambulances were taking 90 minutes to respond to heart attack and stroke cases, so like the most dire emergency calls. And there was a 7 million person long waiting list for scheduled medical treatments, like, uh, I don't know, getting a mole removed or something like that. An analysis by the Financial Times also found uh, a precipitous drop in the average British family's standard of living as compared to other countries in Europe. By the end of this decade, the average British citizen, British family, will have a lower standard of living than the average Polish family. So they're just watching themselves go down. Part of this is Brexit, but another big part is austerity and policy choices made by the Tory government over the last decade, specifically budget cuts after the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, And then, unlike the U.S., where we will gut social services and fund our military until the bitter end, their army's been hollowed out. There was a report in Sky News that U.S. generals are warning the British defense secretary that they're not going to be able to defend their own country pretty soon. Uh, And with Putin as a backdrop, that's actually kind of scary. So... With that context, I just wanted to read you three things that Tory political leaders are up to and and get your take. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had to fire, uh, finally fired, the Conservative Party chairman, Nadim Zahawi, after it came out that he had to pay 4.8 million pounds in a penalty for failure to pay taxes, and then he didn't disclose it when he was Boris Johnson's minister. Hmm. That seems bad. Boris Johnson is trying to duck questions about accepting an 800,000 pound loan while prime minister from a dude he later made the BBC chairman, never disclosed it, and former prime minister Liz Truss went to D.C. to meet with Grover Norquist and a bunch of right-wing supply-side tax cut jackals. And he told her, you do one issue, you do Jack Kemp, you do we're the lower rate people. Ben, how clear does the evidence need to be that Tory tax cuts and austerity and their policy proposals yeah. were a disaster before these guys learned a lesson. What are they doing with, with Grover Norquist? They just don't have another play. And and the important thing about the, keeping eye on the ball of like the NHS, the way these things connect is that the austerity like had already gutted social services, right? It had already kind of like stretched things like the National Health Service to the breaking point. Is this like years of austerity? Remember, we had a huge philosophical disagreement oh my God. with both the Brits and the Germans and, about and austerity. Merkel, yeah, because like we spent our way out of the financial crisis, and they tried to budget cut their way out of it. And Brexit on top of that, right? So you already have like squeeze social services, like then all of a sudden you take a like a hatchet to like your own capacity to grow your economy. You complicate things. You, you know, like you, you have to do this messy divorce from Europe. They're in real dire straits here. Um, 90 minutes for an ambulance. They can't pay their bills. They, they can't make these agencies whole. 
like they can't meet their their citizens' expectations for what the safety net should be. They can't figure out a way to generate growth because when Liz Truss tries to do that with the only way the Tories know how, which is to like cut taxes, they they literally the Bank of England has to step in because they can't support that. Um, I saw like the a piece that was making the rounds, but that basically like the UK is on the verge, and this is no offense to the good people of Slovenia. But like you're going to have a higher standard of living as a Slovenian than a Brit in the next few years. Like yeah. this is like like accelerated and end of empire, I guess, post end of empire. Worst economic slowdown in the UK in 250 yeah. years. And so it's just time to reset this thing. And and the reason the Boris Johnson and Liz Truss stuff is, is relevant is that shows why the Tories can't do it. Boris is corrupt. You know, all he cared about is like refurbishing number 10 and drawing attention to himself. Liz Truss had no play other than to kind of be like like play at Margaret, Margaret Thatcher without even like the kind of ideological foundation for it. So she's running around being like a Thatcherite hero to like washed up hacks like Grover Norquist in this country. Rishi Sunak has no play here. Like the toys, the toys don't have an answer. And so. British politics is like somebody underwater that needs to hit bottom, like the feet need to push the bottom and push up. You may not be a huge Keir Starmer fan, but like just got to try something different over there. I think Keir Starmer said some good things about, and Lammy's been on here talking about it, but like re regenerating the economy through a huge influx in investment and clean energy like that, you know, sounds pretty similar to what Democrats are doing, mm-hmm. trying to do here. They, they need to try something different. Something. And Boris Johnson was running around. The House of Representatives today. I was even meeting with like Jim Banks or somebody. Yeah. I mean, like if you're the former, if you fashion yourself like a modern day Churchill and you're knocking on the door of Republican House members, like whatever play you're doing is not working. No, it's not working. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. They respond within 72 hours after an emergency strikes, staying as long as needed. Refugee and displaced families are amazingly resilient, but in places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Lebanon, displaced families are experiencing adverse winter weather on top of war, hunger, and displacement. Many refugee and displacement camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions, especially as climate conflict and economic turmoil have driven up food prices, destroyed infrastructure, and driven millions of people from their homes. Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild, including winter items, emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, and cash assistance. Uh, I have to say, the IRC is an amazing organization. They do heroic work all over the globe. And unfortunately, it has never been more important and needed. Uh, If you are thinking about giving, please consider giving to the IRC. And if you're going to give at the end of the year, uh, maybe move that up because they could use your help now. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. 
Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. I, I, listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Okay, let's turn to Ukraine, because uh, last week we went deep on this debate over whether Western countries should send uh, heavy tanks. We won't get into all those details again, but it was resolved. The U.S. is sending 31 Abrams tanks in Germany and other European countries are going to send about 80 Leopard tanks. So that's settled. Now the debate has turned to F-16s and whether uh, Ukraine is pushing NATO countries for modern fighter jets, specifically the F-16. They say, the Ukrainians, that Poland is open to the idea France has not ruled it out, but I think they would want to condition the support. Biden seems to be a hard no, at least for yeah. now. Um, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, he seemed pretty annoyed by this request, Ben. Here's yeah. a quote. Uh, I can only advise against entering into a constant competition to outbid each other when it comes to weapon systems. If, as soon as a decision has been made, the next debate starts in Germany, this does not look very serious and shakes the confidence of the citizens in government decisions. That feels scathing for a German. Yeah. Yeah. Calm um, crazy. For a calm German like Olaf Schultz. I mean, first of all, and I think we had it right last week, but so did everybody. <laughs> Basically, the Germans were waiting for the U.S. to do this so they could all yeah, jump together, in. right? I do think that Schultz, you know, has a point here, right? Which is that the, the tank thing was like a tough political decision for the Germans to make for all the reasons we talked about last week. And for the U.S., the U.S., I think, didn't want to necessarily do the tanks, but we all had to do it to get the Germans to do it. The Germans doing it allowed some of the other Europeans who bought the German tanks to do it. Right. To, to immediately go to F-16s does, you know, you got to be careful here. Like, like we, we support Ukraine. Like, they're the ones fighting on the front line. They're going to ask for everything. So, like, yeah. I don't necessarily blame... I get it, but blame, it sounds exhausting, yeah. But, but you also have to realize that there are politics in these other countries... And, and also even militarily and, and around the escalation risk, the F-16 is the most obvious thing that poses an escalation risk, you know, because that is a weapon that clearly could be used to strike into Russia. And if I'm even Ukraine or friends of Ukraine trying to get more assistance, what I'd be pushing on now is like more tanks, actually, right? Like the, the, the number of tanks provided was significant, but not frankly that significant if you dig into it militarily. Yeah. And... And frankly, rather than kind of upping the ante, like, oh, you gave us tanks, now now bring the planes. I think the focus should be on these things that are working and are relevant to the offensives that everybody's expecting in southern and eastern Ukraine, 
like that's tanks, that's artillery, like be focused on building out that contribution instead of moving to the next big weapon system that, you know, by the way, the Biden people are clearly uncomfortable with because it poses the greatest escalation with with Russia. And yeah, like after you just put the German chancellor in a pretty tough political bind, got him to the right place to do this right away, I think is is politically not the right look. Now, what the Ukrainian supporters will say is the faster you can help Ukraine win, the better, et cetera. I get all that. But like maybe the faster way is to get them more of the stuff that you think is necessary for these offensives, like tanks and artillery and all the rest of it, instead of just, you know, now we want F-16s. That argument, more faster, will end it faster. That might be right. But politics is going to govern these decisions. That just sort of is what it is. I also saw the United States is ramping up uh, uh, production of artillery by 500%. So there's all these long-term steps yeah. being taken. Also, did you see that um, Boris Johnson, <laughs> speaking of Boris Johnson, he told a BBC documentary that during a phone call in February, Vladimir Putin threatened to fire a missile at him? <laughs> no, I missed Here's the quote. Here's the quote. Uh, he sort of threatened me at one point and said, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but with a missile, it would only take a minute or something like that. From the relaxed tone that he was taking, the sort of air of detachment that he seemed to have, he was just playing along with my attempts to get him to negotiate. Uh, Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, responded saying, it is a lie. There were no threats of missiles. If this passage was perceived in this way, it is very embarrassing. <laughs> Meaning for, for Boris, I think. Uh, yeah, Boris. I mean, I, I saw him writing like long op-eds about Ukraine. I mean, he's clearly trying to position himself as the, the vanguard of, you know, whatever. Uh, this question of like helping Ukraine win fast is, is an important one because wh- I, I still think it has to be defined what that means because Putin's not going to surrender. Um, so does that mean pushing Russia off every inch of Ukrainian territory? But Russia's still there. Putin's still there, right? And so to me, it, it's more about like, what should be the priority? The priority should be, first of all, getting the Russians out of any place that they've, like that's this land bridge that they've created in the South, and then just trying to push them out of Eastern Ukraine, pouring F-16s in, like not attached to like, I think the, 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 this is getting too divorced from where the politics of the US and Europe understand things are going. Like what what is the military yeah. strategy? Like, I, you know, like, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm guessing here, but I think the F-16s would be used to fire at these long-range Russian bombers, which yeah. I think very often are firing missiles from inside Russian territory that hit Ukraine. So to, back to your escalation risk point, like there it is. And that's where I'm also like, let's pour in more Patriot batteries. Like I'm yeah. for all the defense. I'm stuff. for yeah. like more support for Ukraine. I really am. I don't want to, but I think that like th- there's a real clear case that has been built and made around tanks, artillery, and Patriots. That, that I have not really heard articulated around the F-16s. Yeah, me either. Last week, I mentioned that Turkey seemed like they might block Sweden's entry into NATO. Now it seems even more muddy. So maybe we dig into that when there's a little more resolution. I think Turkey tried to say, oh, Finland, you should join first. Then Sweden can join. The Finns rejected that. Who knows? Erdogan's a pain in the ass. There's an election coming up. I'm sure up. he's trying to leverage something out of it. Uh, exactly. He wants like a bunch of Gulen supporters and Kurds, I think, sent from Sweden to Turkey, and I think they're mad that there was some anti-Turkey rally in Sweden that pissed him off. And by the way, there's an election coming in Turkey that Erdogan may try to steal or you know, like you know, make all of his opponents illegal. He doesn't want the West to criticize him. Yeah. So dragging this out through his election is useful to him For because sure. it you know keeps the West from 
being too vocal about what happens in Turkey. Yeah, I talked to Derek about this. He said he thinks it'll get done. Uh, and he actually specifically mentioned there's an election coming up. Yeah, you get it. Okay, uh, quick update on this endless classified document saga. Uh, NBC News reported that some of what the FBI took from Biden's house and office were handwritten notebooks. We talked about this last week a bit, I think. If you take handwritten notes in a classified meeting, you're supposed to mark them as classified. They're technically classified. They're technically government records. But if you now have FBI agents and lawyers flipping through Biden's like notebooks trying to figure out what's classified and what's not, you can see how that will slow things down because there's not like a little marking that makes it very easy. Also on this front, Ben, both Democrats and Republicans in the Senate are frustrated with the Biden administration because the Intelligence Committee wants to see which documents were recovered from Trump, Biden, and Pence. But the DNI, our friend of Real Haynes, uh, I think she had reportedly said they would brief them on those documents. But then the Department of Justice launched these special counsel investigations, and now they're saying they won't brief an ongoing investigation. Senator Tom Cotton, notorious asshole, he threatened to block the confirmation of all Biden nominees in the Senate until they get this briefing or see all these documents. That is childish, stupid, disproportionate, par for the course for him. But I will say, on balance, I think these senators are right. And like the suggestion that Mark Warner can't see what documents were taken from Trump's house or Biden's garage because there's a DOJ investigation is ludicrous. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's stupid. I don't know why you wouldn't just share these documents like they're the intelligence committee yeah they're supposed to be overseeing this is their job and and, and, so like like, you know why not share the documents first thing the tom cotton thing is a pain in the ass it does point to the fact that even you know we talked about sarah margon's nomination last week the republicans are good at using every procedural thing to slow down nominations the democrats may get to a point where they have to kind of just like ram some of this through um, so it bears watching whether or not all the Biden appointees for ambassadorships and other things are, are getting kind of paralyzed here. The one thing we haven't focused on uh, on the classified documents thing is the overclassification piece. And you mentioned the handwritten notes thing. I mean, I think people don't understand just how absurd the overclassification is. So much. So stuff. this came up. I'll use another infamous example, which was like the Hillary server. You know, if I recall correctly, like there were there was a judgment made that X number of documents on that server were classified. But some of them were kind of like, you know, and these are not direct quotes. So, yeah. so like, you know, Hillary. It was like uh, news reports about drone strikes in places that were considered classified. Yes. Because they were shared by people with clearances that was viewed as being classified. So, yeah. Co- yeah. That's one good example. Like what to do about this news report about drone strike. Well, that's classified. Another is like any conversation with a foreign leader. So I think there were like emails like, S, that's the the jargon for secretary, like connected with BB, like, oh, classified, you know, like, so like, stupid. so I, I the, the, if the, if anybody wants to be constructive here, whether it's the intelligence community or Congress trying to find kind of major categories of like addressing overclassification would be helpful here. In other words, the bias is any reference to like, say, a foreign leader called classified or any note in a meeting that was classified is classified or we dealt with the absurdity when WikiLeaks documents were published in the New York Times. The New York Times was actually seen as classified. Remember? Yeah, well, you they were couldn't blocking. go to the website. You couldn't go to the website of your computer. This is crazy. And yeah. so they had to change on some of these categories. Like the the bias has to be towards this is not classified, you know, rather than everything is classified. Because if all it turns out is that we've been through all this because Joe Biden had some handwritten notes. 
that probably didn't say anything sensitive, but like, you know, today I talked to my buddy so-and-so and like, oh, that's classified because that person's a foreigner. Like, this is a waste of everybody's time. Yeah, the overclassification issue is a real, real problem, in part because it just makes the volume of classified documents completely unworkable. There's no way to declassify them. There's no way for archivists and historians to go through them. It's just like, it's it's just a deluge of and, stuff. And why is it classified? Again, like, if it is a source and method of intelligence collection, yeah. I get it. But if it's just like the meeting happened to be in the situation room exactly. or it was a foreign leader phone call, but they didn't discuss anything sensitive or like, it's just too much. It's too much. Two Twitter stories. So one, uh, Semaphore had a good piece about how Twitter closed. It's one office on the, in the continent of Africa, uh, which only had 20 staffers to begin with. This has now led to a proliferation of fake news ahead of Nigeria's uh, upcoming presidential election. So I think you see a lot of people being like, oh, Elon fired the whole staff, didn't have any impact. Well, abroad, it did. Yeah, and maybe it didn't in like, you know, the in D.C., but right, like in right. Nigeria, it has a huge, huge. impact. Also, uh, Twitter blocked access to a documentary critical of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi after the Indian government demanded that they censor it. This documentary looks at Modi's role uh, in the Gujarat riots back in 2002, where there was basically a three-day pogrom uh, that killed thousands of people, mostly Muslims, horrible reprisal violence, sectarian violence. Modi was a regional governor at the time. He has been accused of condoning the violence or failing to respond to it. So, Ben, this this exact scenario was not only predictable, but I think we predicted it on this show. Like, India was always going to be a weak spot for Elon because... Tesla wants access yeah. to the Indian market, maybe to put some production there. Elon wants Starlink, the satellite service, to be available in India. So the self-declared free speech absolutist immediately caved to this demand from Modi, which included censoring tweets by Indian members of parliament who posted links to this video. I'm sure there's countless other demands that we don't know about. Best of all, someone tweeted at Elon, like, hey, what's the deal here? Can you explain what happened? He pretended not to know about it. When he's providing like tech support, when to he's down in the weeds, captured or whatever yeah, yeah. these guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so Twitter is not the only tech company who complies with Indian censorship requests. YouTube does, other places, but again, like it does underscore the how utterly full of shit he is by calling himself a free speech absolutist. No, you're not. No, I mean, he, you know, he's a free speech absolutist for like right wing American trolls. But it, like if you're in any other country in the world, particularly a country where he has business interests, like he'll censor anything. <laughs> it's with the message here. And we've dealt with this because Ron Ayub was a part of the investigation that proved right. that Modi and his circle were at least complicit in kind of not ginning people up, certainly looking the other way in Gujarat. And by the way, that wasn't a novel conclusion. Like the U.S. had a travel ban on Modi until he was elected prime minister, right. as well as a bunch of European countries. I think the... The bigger question raised, India was always going to be a very awkward issue. There are a number of categories. Let's you know, break them down, Tommy, like the, the democracy people, you know, people who are you know, in the kind of, let's say, our big collective of never Trump pro-democracy people here. There's the question of what happens when the democratic movement, because you know, it's easy to condemn, I don't know, Viktor Orban, like the prime minister of like a medium-sized Eastern European country, Central Eastern European country that you know, is on the margins of some U.S. interests. Uh, Israel, there's something about what we've talked about today, huge democratic backsliding in Israel. Like if, if this was happening in other places, like trying to neuter the Supreme Court, trying to take away rights from people, sure. trying to inflict collective punishment, like there'd be a lot more tension on that from the democracy crowd. We don't really talk about it when it comes to Israel because there, there are a lot of factors, including geopolitical ones. India, right? 
huge geopolitical interest in the United States because they're part of any strategy to deal with China and huge profit motive for the Elon Musks of the world because there's this massive emerging market. And so I just think like we have to check our, our own uh, Nigeria. Do we even give a shit? Right. Like, you know, uh, uh, do we care about that Nigerian election that could help determine the future of democracy in that part of Africa that is going to be like half the world's people by 2050, the continent of Africa? It, it just shows that like we have to try to strive to be more consistent in, in how we think about our principles here, because everybody else can see these double standards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, OK, so here's a good country to focus on, uh, which is Peru talking about sort of yeah. democratic backsliding. So uh, in early December, the now former Peruvian president, uh, Pedro Castillo, was impeached after he tried to dissolve Peru's Congress. Castillo was then arrested on the charge of violating the constitutional order. I think he's sitting in jail still. His vice president, uh, Diana Boluarte, replaced him. She called for calm. She called for like a unity government. But there have been massive protests ever since calling for her to, to resign. The Associated Press reported that nearly 60 people have been killed in those protests, mostly from security forces firing on protesters. But protesters also uh, attacked a police officer, burned him to death in a squad car, like a lot of nasty stuff's happening. Boluarte called for moving up the elections from 2026 to 2024 and a concession. Protesters saying, no, that's not enough. We want them this year. Now, Ben, a group of House Democrats are calling on President Biden to suspend U.S. security assistance to Peru until security forces stop massacring protesters and until there's some accountability for the people who have been uh, overseeing that. Peru's foreign minister is in D.C. this week for meetings. The U.S. provides $40 million a year to Peru. It ain't much, right? It's all counter drug stuff. Do you think this is a good idea? Is this meaningful leverage in your book? I, I just don't think it's like that. I mean, it's, it's an interesting idea, and I certainly think that if there's continued security force violence, like, we should put some restrictions on it. Uh, again, like, do we do it in other places, <laughs> you know? Um, but uh, I, I think that, look, they're in a massive political crisis in that, like, they have, they've had this revolving door uh, of leadership, right? And part of what you, I'm not a Peru expert, but clearly, in addition to, like, the grievance of, a left-wing president who was beginning to move in an anti-democratic direction, being ousted, his supporters are stirred up. Part of this has just got to be frustration with just the politics is broken in this oh, country, man, I know. right? I and imagine. and so I, I do think that this is. I don't like the idea of the U.S. bilaterally, in in Latin America generally, like mm-hmm. just telling people to do something. I think you try to get a collective of other countries, you know, in. To, to work diplomatically to try to understand what is Peru's roadmap to an election, like how are they going to get out of this impasse? And yes, I, I, I'm not saying it shouldn't be on the table. Like if they're massacring people, like we can put a hold on that assistance. Absolutely. I just don't know that that's going to be the, the game changer. I think you need a broader regional strategy that brings in a bunch of different voices and is trying to find a pathway through that has an election and, and some kind of internal dialogue in Peru that can try to stabilize. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. That's well said. Uh, Let's turn to uh, Ethiopia because uh, I read this article that made my jaw drop uh, in the FT where the former Nigerian president who is serving as the African Union's peace mediator in Ethiopia, uh, trying to mediate the civil war uh, that's been fought in northern Ethiopia and the Tigray region. He said that there may have been as many uh, as 600,000 casualties. This was uh, this interview with FT. They also talked to another uh, researcher named Tim Vandenbemt. He told the FT that he believed the figure was accurate and put the number of civilian casualties between 300,000 and 400,000, and then like battlefield deaths between 200,000. 
and 300,000. So there's just a staggering number of deaths for a war that didn't start long ago. It was late 2020. That's like Syrian civil war, like like neighborhood casualties, right? Yeah. And for a much shorter compressed period of time. Right. That's what I point. I made the contrast just to point out that in a very compressed period of time, like you're reaching that level of violence and death. Yeah. And so, you know, you have this fragile peace agreement. It got uh, brokered late last year. You just got to hope that sticks, basically. But I mean, 600,000 people. It, it does show you that uh, even um, not solving the problem, you, you still have an overwhelming humanitarian interest in just trying to stop fighting and get people talking, yep. you know, like, because they're not solving the underlying differences with Eritrea and Tigray and Ethiopia. That would, We've unpacked that. It takes a while. But like just trying to get humanitarian access, get assistance to people, put, you know, anybody in between warring armies and just stop this thing. Like this, this is the scale of loss of life that can happen if you make the perfect the enemy the good. You know? yeah. yeah, you can save like a thousand lives a day. I mean, yeah, that's what they're talking about. Former Brazilian president, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, has apparently put in a request for a six-month tourist visa like to, KFC, huh? to stay in the United States. Okay, I heard a BBC report today that said he's been staying with an MMA fighter in Florida. I like, saw that too, yeah. yeah. Well, do we know which one? I don't know MMA at all. Can we just like, is, is Crick going to do a podcast? You you run this place, right? Or sure, like, yeah, nominally. Like a Florida, like what... Like what is happening? M- M- it was, of course, there's a bunch of MMA guys down there. Like, like yeah. Florida's attracts like a very predictable yet eccentric collection of of people. You know, I, I can't imagine what the Orlando Burbs are like. So obviously, back home in Brazil, they're trying to figure out if Bolsonaro had a role in their little January sixth. Yeah, I don't know who makes the decision in the U.S. government, Ben. But like, can you think of an easier no than denying this visa I, request? I, I can't. I mean, it, it, like, what trying to like inciting an insurrection in the largest democracy in South America. Like, it seems, seems, it seems like that would be a strike against you. And Lula is coming to Washington on February 10th. So, you know, you might want to figure this out before that. Uh, I also saw that the Brazil and Argentina were talking about creating a new common currency to operate in parallel with their currencies. It basically is a way to reduce reliance on the U.S. dollar in the region. I don't know. Well, I think what the, an old idea, the Lula meeting will be interesting because like, like, Continuing on the theme of like the never Trump coalition, right? Like everybody becomes friends when they. Lula is going to come here. He's not where we are on Ukraine. Not even close. So today he met with Schultz, uh, and, and I saw his comments were basically like, "Well, it takes two to fight." So like the Ukrainians are kind of equally responsible for the war, and yes, he's going to start ginning up this stuff in Latin America around getting U.S. influence reduced. We've been, I, you know, saying for a long time that it on Cuban Venezuela policy, like, mm-hmm. you know, he's not exactly Bolsonaro on that. So I, I think Lula, you know, from, uh, I, and I'm, by the way, sympathetic to to some of Lula's views, not on Ukraine, but on on uh, on certain aspects of Latin American policy. But I, I think we have to remember that, like, Lula, huge improvement uh, over Bolsonaro, um, the right thing for uh, Brazilian democracy, I think the right thing for causes of social justice in, in Brazil as well. Um, that doesn't mean he's going to be an easy partner for Biden. And I think that's going to be kind of probably on display at that meeting. Um, they'll want to coordinate. Yeah, one way to make this go better is to not be kind of harboring <laughs> Bolsonaro. Yeah. Although I don't know if Lula might want him out of the country. I don't know if they, like if I'm Lula, I don't know what's better. Like like having him hang out with a MMA fighter in Florida yeah, or having point. him like stirring up crowds in Brazil. You know, I don't know. Yeah, maybe at some point you got to prosecute him. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, speaking of denying visas to assholes, uh, Australia 
might deny a visa request by Kanye West because uh, he loves Hitler and yeah, wants you know, hangs with Nazis. Wears uh, like ski hats. Or yeah. <laughs> so Kanye, I guess, wants to visit his new girlfriend's family in Melbourne. But Australia can they can deny you based wait, on wait, good character. Girlfriend or married? I thought they were married. I can't keep. Track I tried anymore, to. I, I was TMZing. The, okay, they're married now. I th- it was like reporting. Oh. Does anybody here yes. can we confirm this? Okay, right. says yes. Well, Mazel tov. Yeah, I, I, but what's weird is it, like when I went down this rabbit hole, she looks just like kind of Kim, Kim Kardashian adjacent. Yeah, you know. Haley, am I right about that? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. You gotta be, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe she's yeah. related. Uh, oh, if they do let him in, here's a job Kanye could do. Ben, uh, Australian authorities are searching for a tiny radioactive capsule that apparently fell off a truck during a 1400 kilometer trip in Western Australia. This capsule is eight millimeters by six millimeters. It's part of a gauge in mining equipment that emits enough radiation that it could burn your skin or cause prolonged cancer with uh, exposure. So I don't don't drive to Perth anytime soon. It's my message to you. Boy, we've had some good Australia stories over the years. How do you lose Um, a fucking capsule full of that sounds like a the, that stuff. sounds like the opening scene of a movie. Yes, very you know much I mean? so. The Walking Dead. Yeah, and and the Kanye West coming into the movie halfway through would actually be a good twist. You know, what if he's an anti anti hero and he saves the day? His and he ego, kind of recovers his like you know yeah yeah uh, the the radioactive material makes him not a Nazi not you <laughs> maybe it, it, like yeah maybe he had, like had some exposure in the past that actually distorted his brain and then now he gets the antidote or something. I don't know. You know what Hollywood. Call us. This jo- is, they this let Djokovic in this year, and he he won the Australian Open. He did. Now, what did, his dad was hanging out with yeah, some Russians. I, I, I worked it in. I, I want to hear it. What, well, what his, happened? His though? dad, after the quarterfinal win, was celebrating outside with all these guys holding like the V sign or the Z sign. Oh you know, no! The, like the, on the, the Russian the, trucks. Russian, and yeah, and like the Russian flag and stuff. Then he didn't show up for the semifinals. Djokovic put out a statement clarifying that he was against the war. Um, great. But it wasn't great. Isn't he sort of like a weird Serbian nationalist hanging out yeah, with some I mean, dicey well, figures? Yeah, like he tried to distance himself from whatever his dad was doing with these guys with the, the Z sign. <laughs> um, but, but um, you know, if you stack up his views on like vaccines and some other things, like it suggests perhaps like that that's not too out of brand, you know. Hmm, interesting. Uh, finally, uh, we just wanted to highlight the fact that the Saudi government continues to pour money into Donald Trump's pocket. We've talked at some length, I think, on this show, I can't remember for sure, about the $2 billion check that the Saudis cut to Jared Kushner, despite Jared having no investment experience, as went to his little fund. This week, we learned that the Saudi-owned Live Golf Tour will host three of 14 tournaments this year at Trump-owned courses. Uh, he hosted two live events at his courses in 2022. Trump also cut a weird deal with the Saudi real estate company to build a $4 billion project in Oman. When Trump was asked about Saudi Arabia's human rights record last October, I think the New York Times asked him at the tournament, he said Saudi officials were, quote, good people with unlimited money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we have human rights issues here in this country. We have human rights issues here as much as anybody. So there you have it, Ben foreign government pouring money into the pocket of a declared presidential candidate. Well, plus, like, we know that, well, A, we know that Liv is, like, just sports washing to the kind of cartoonish degree, right? Um, there's no other reason for the Saudis to have, like, a golf tour. We also know that they overpay, right? Didn't they offer, like, 
Greg Norman like 100 million bucks to, to like be the commissioner of this league or something. There was a report that like, they offered uh, uh, Tiger Woods like 800 million or something. Yeah, like so like a billion dollars. They're probably not just paying the normal fees to host a tournament. You know, they're probably in the same way that they overpaid for all their hotel rooms at whatever that cheesy Trump hotel was in Washington. Like, I'm sure they're massively overpaying. I think the Washington Post had a story uh, that found that the number of uh, campaign finance disclosures that talk about events at the Trump Hotel have gone to zero since it's become like, a, I don't know, like a Hilton or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Entirely just a grift to pour money into Just pocket. a grift. I mean- I, We all knew it, but- I'd love to know what the sum total value of all that was, because I bet it was a lot. It was know? like hundreds of millions. Because if you, the thing about hotels and golf courses is they may sound like something different than stock trades, but like it's just direct money coming in. I mean, mm-hmm. it is just cash flow. You yeah, know? just cash in his pocket. Okay, that is it for the news section. Uh, but stick around because when we come back, you will hear my conversation with uh, Yanti Sorepto from the Save the Children. She's the president and CEO of Save the Children. She just got back from a trip to Afghanistan. She had nine meetings with the Taliban where she tried to convince them to let uh, women work for NGOs and allow them to operate and provide humanitarian relief. So you will not want to miss that. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. You can live out your master chef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. I am so excited to welcome to the show today, Yanti Sorepto, who is the president and CEO of Save the Children USA, an amazing, truly wonderful international NGO working to improve the lives of children around the world. If you're thinking about uh, charitable giving this year, consider them and consider doing it early in the year instead of waiting till the end, which a lot of people do for, I don't know, tax reasons, I guess, but whatever. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much and wonderful to be here. Uh, So you just got back from Afghanistan. Uh, I think you returned on Friday where you had nine meetings with the Taliban. Um, I'd love to talk about those. But before we get into specifics, could you just take a moment and help people understand why you were going over to Afghanistan and what the situation is like in Afghanistan now, especially for women and children since the Taliban took over? Thank you. Uh, and absolutely. So Afghanistan is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world Um Today And actually, that's saying something in a world where yeah. there's lots of crises, right, vying for that particularly un- yeah. un- unappealing title. Um, we were talking about a country of 40 million people. 28 million of those people are in humanitarian need. Importantly for us, 
15 million of those 28 are children. So well over half of the people in humanitarian need are our children, children are always the most vulnerable, particularly in countries like Afghanistan and girls uh, even more so. Um, what we've seen, and Save the Children has been in Afghanistan since 1976, right? So for mm. many decades uh, where we've also worked under the previous Taliban regime and we've worked in many of the provinces where the Taliban was essentially already in control before the uh, the fall of Kabul in August of, of uh, 21. Now I'm trying to get my year straight here. Um, so what we've seen over the past 18 months, um, you know, a couple of things. We've definitely seen a deterioration uh, of women's rights and, and, and rights for girls, for sure. Um, we've also seen, of course, a, a huge impact on the Afghan economy when uh, the United States and, and other countries pulled out. Uh, just simply the economy essentially lost 20% of its value. Um, wow. So... Uh, that in and of itself is, of course, a problem. I was driving around in Kabul and you literally saw these roads where there's these almost these graveyards of big construction machines and diggers and everything else because they are now not being used, whereas before there was actually construction and infrastructure were going on. Um, so there's that. On the upside, in terms of the positives, it is definitely more secure. It's been less unsafe in country. There's been less conflict, less incidents. Um, that allowed us actually to expand some of our work into areas where before it was literally too uh, difficult to to work. Um, so that's better. Um, and and the Taliban, you know, always reminds us of that when we when we speak to them um, and, and 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 says we we didn't thank them for that. Um, so there's that. Uh, but what we're seeing is you know incredible rates of malnutrition. We had the opportunity last week to visit. A nutrition, a malnutrition treatment clinic. You know, we're thinking, a, you know, a, a small space uh, where there were, I think, certainly forty women with their children, uh, often, you know, more than one child, young children, babies, newborns, as well as toddlers, uh, where they come to have their children checked out, and we checked them. Uh, the wonderful people there checked them on on malnutrition, right, and mm -hmm. uh, growth, stunting, wasting. Are these kids, uh, you know? What's their situation like? And then when they are found to be uh, suffering from malnutrition, they get treatment in, in order to get them back on, on track. So we and those rates have gone up massively. That's why, you know, 28 million children, people in humanitarian need in Afghanistan, but six million of those really at famine's door, so to speak, where yeah. they don't know where their next meal is coming from. And also don't forget, we were there last week. It was cold. There are areas in Afghanistan where it is minus 25 Celsius. I'm talking here 25 to minus 35 degrees Celsius. People don't have money to buy fuel. So it's bitterly cold. I saw kids mm -hmm. on on bare feet coming in the door in that nutrition center. So um, that's what we're seeing on the ground. So people are dying. They're, it's bitterly cold and there isn't enough food. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the Taliban fairly recently instituted a ban on allowing women to work for NGOs uh, that provide right. aid and assistance. Uh, uh, what does that mean for an organization like yours? Are you able to function without women working on the ground? It, it certainly was incredibly unwelcome, I would say. So we have 5,000, over 5,000 staff in country. The vast, vast majority of those are Afghan nationals, right? There's We, we probably have a how many, 20 to 30 international staff there, under 5,000 staff. Almost half of those 5,000 staff were women. 
So they're, they're nurses, doctors, finance managers, logisticians, mm. HR managers, etc. So the Taliban um, sent their edict of women not being allowed to work for us on the 24th of December. That meant that on the 25th of December, our work stopped. It paused because we cannot do our work well and safely without women mm-hmm. in that whole cycle. Women help us. You know, you have to understand in Afghanistan, women and children are the most vulnerable of those people in need. In order to speak to women, to fi- to find women, and to be allowed to give to deliver services to them, you actually have to work with women. Right. You, you can't send some single man into a house with only women. Exactly. That's not going to be accepted. Exactly. So that in and of itself is an impossibility. Of course, if women know that there's a food distribution program going on and there's only men there, they they will not find it safe to actually go there. Um, So for all those very practical reasons, it's impossible for us to do our work without women, uh, aside from, of course, the the principle that we think women have a right to work wherever they want. Um, So we pause our work. Now, as always, and Afghanistan has always been like that, negotiations happen at a local level mm-hmm. always. Uh, so to create that operational space and agreement with local authorities to allow our work. So that whole process kicked into gear. The Ministry of Health was then actually very quick to say the ban doesn't apply for any of the health work. Uh, the Ministry of Education followed suit to say the ban doesn't, impl- doesn't apply to all of the primary education that you're mm-hmm. uh, delivering. So... We've got so where we can, we've gone back. We're not sitting there saying we're go- we're not going to do anything until this ban is reversed. If we can find an opening to work, we're doing so. So a lot of our mobile health clinics are back. Uh, a number of our edu- our primary schools where we teach girls and boys uh, are back uh, and and opened. And it was heartening for me to see when you're speaking to local staff and our local partners, often women. Um, they say, look, local communities, women and men, want our programs back. They want their schools to be open. They want healthcare for their kids, right? Which parent doesn't want that? And yeah, they right. understand that you have to do that with women. So they advocate locally on our behalf to have our work restarted. So you had these nine meetings with various members of the Taliban. Can you, can you give us sort of a sense of who you were talking to and, and how they went, those conversations? Yeah, it's it's always interesting. So we saw um, Minister of Foreign, Foreign Affairs... Um, economy. Economy is an important ministry because that ministry actually holds the registration um, of all of the national of, of all of the NGOs, right? So they okay. give us the license to operate in country. Um, and then we saw a variety of line ministries: health, education, rural development, refugees, uh, interior, etc. So in in all of those conversations, um, you you have a conversation about why we think the ban should be reversed that we think the ban is wrong, particularly wrong, with dire consequences for the people of Afghanistan. And that's surely not what uh, the de facto authorities would want for their population. And then we started to also get more practical to say, look, within education or within health, we would like these exemptions, these authorizations you've given us, thank you very much, we'd like them to be expanded. Hmm. And we'd like them to be very reliable and sustainable so that if you give us a, a national authorization, if I then go to a checkpoint in this province over over there, far away from Kabul, our female colleagues are not being harassed at a, mm-hmm. at a checkpoint or being prevented from going back into the office or into the school. 
Um, so those are the conversations that we've had with ministries where there were authorizations given. And then there were others where we said, look, our work on food security, our work on livelihoods, on installing safe um, drinking water um, uh, infrastructure is really important to keep those schools and hospitals open. So please allow us those authorizations as well. So we're trying to essentially push the boundaries of what is allowed under this temporary ban. Wow, that's amazing. So these are really granular, kind of inch by inch. They, what about this? Yeah. Can I get that? Can I get that? And can I hold on to this over here whilst I try to expand this here? Exactly. That's amazing. Um, I, I was listening to someone uh, talk about this band who had a lot of experience in Afghanistan. And he said that, ironically, some of the more militant factions of the Taliban sometimes can be more moderate. And maybe mm -hmm. this edict banning women from b being employed or being in schools came from the clerical leaders in Kandahar. Do yep. you think that that's an accurate assessment? Th that is absolutely the case. Uh, yes. And are you able to connect with the, the Kandahar leadership or is this more of a cobble-based set of discussions? We, in the end, decided not to go to Kandahar uh, this time around um, because we felt we had, A, we, we, were, we managed to get to some of the influencers in Kabul who also have an influence in uh, in the people in Kandahar. Uh, we also didn't want to be um, snubbed in Kandahar and then not being seen because we've seen that film before as well. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a balance, right? Always to say, when is the right time to try to mm -hmm. engage? Uh, when is the right time to, to, to not engage? I mean, overall, I would say, and that's also our briefing to member states um, and the international community, we do need to have more political engagement. We cannot leave it to just a humanitarian community to essentially be the only ones in country and be the be the only interlocutor with uh, with the de facto authorities. That doesn't work because then humanitarian support is being politicized really quickly. Mm -hmm. Especially after uh, two decades of a uh, a war effort that. Exactly. People feeling less safe than they do now under the Taliban rule. Um, is there any political space for for I mean, I assume more likely men, husbands, fathers, brothers to protest, to call out the government for this decision? Yeah. And there and there is. And you do see it at small scale level. You see dads, you know, bravely taking their daughters to school and just standing there demanding that she's let in. And even if they don't let her in, they're coming back the next day. Right. <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. unbelievable to see. We're seeing those dads and, and the moms advocate to, you know, as I said, to, to reopen those healthcare clinics and they want women to work there, not men. Um, so we do see it. Um, you know, the, the spirit of Afghan women never ceases to amaze me and inspire me. I mean, I spoke to a number of those Afghan leaders uh, who, who work for NGOs, who, who run NGOs. They are essentially they're the managing directors there of CEO. Uh, CEOs of NGOs who are not allowed to come into the office at the moment. And they said to us, look, Afghan women have always worked. This is how this country works. We will always find a way, no matter what anyone says. Right. So mm -hmm. they're, they're quite, you know, their spirit is quite indomitable. Um, but of course it's, it's hard for them. It yeah. is hard. Yeah. Incredibly brave people. What do you think the, the United States, the Biden administration should be doing to help the people who are suffering in Afghanistan? What are they getting wrong? What, could they do better? 
we think um, and and the mission was a it wasn't just a UN mission, right? It was a mission of UN agencies plus uh, a number of NGOs mm-hmm. on behalf of the humanitarian community. Um, we think the international community should step up its political engagement. Um, we understand recognition is super difficult, but we need some incentive, some levers with this de, with the de facto authority, because otherwise, why would they? Why would they do anything um, mm. that we would like to see happen? Like girls back in school, like women to work, like etc. So, and I and we do think there are other levers there that are possible. They need, they desperately need. I mean, when we spoke to the Taliban, they're very clear. They don't want humanitarian funding to leave their country. It's twenty percent mm. of GDP. They need. Mm-hmm. They they do understand intellectually and emotionally. They need it and they want it. Now, how how we get there is is then uh, I think the task. Are there, they need a working banking system. At the moment, there, there is none. Um, and that's partially because of sanctions. Um, they need to work together with the international community on counterterrorism. And we, and I think the international community has, you know, an, an interest there too. Um, so there are ways economically, politically, um, yes, humanitarian support, that there could be more engagement with the Taliban. So that would be one, continued engagement and, you know, support, not just money, but also expertise um, to work with uh, the de facto authorities. And importantly, the Taliban also needs to embrace that and allow that to happen and allow that in, right? It, it takes, it really takes two to tango here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we are definitely saying to the US government, but also to, to other uh, governments, that now is not the time to abandon the people of Afghanistan. It'd be so easy to say, oh, this is just too difficult, and the Taliban, you know, we, we just need to use a stick and we'll just remove the funding. That's not the, that is hurting the people of Afghanistan, the, the innocent yeah. population, yeah, the not the de facto authorities. So we ask, we're asking for donors to keep some patience, to, to continue to support the humanitarian community, to work it through, to expand those those areas of authorization to continue to grab back some of the space that we've, that we've lost and to keep it and to continue to do good work there, uh, whilst at the same time really kickstarting a political engagement process with the Taliban to understand, to, to stay in dialogue. Because if there is no dialogue, um, you know, it will be in, impossible to make any progress whatsoever. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, not I think... to say that it will be easy, right, or right. super straightforward. It won't be. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, counterterrorism cooperation. I mean, I think it's uh, understandable but unfortunate that the entire U.S.-Afghanistan relationship is seen through the prism of counterterrorism and cooperation. It's obviously a legacy of 9-11. But ironically, the Taliban government now faces this pretty acute threat from ISIS. Do you think that threat is great enough that they might consider cooperation with their enemy six months ago? Well, see, I mean, you know, depending on who you spoke to in the Taliban, you know, in that sense, completely centralized either, right? You you get uh, messages. Um, but I think they they would be interested in, in some of that, absolutely, in, in cooperation on, yes, on counterterrorism, on, um, on the drugs trade market. They're, you know, they gave back to us that they have clamped down on uh, the illegal drugs market. Um, and that was to the benefit of the international community as well as of the Afghan people. So, 
Now, you can argue, is that really true? Is it, you know, but there are, mm-hmm. there are certain elements of truth there that I think we should uh, not completely ignore uh, because there is, there are ways that you can still be useful to each other, even though you could mightily disagree about lots of other things. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, is Pakistan playing any kind of constructive role in, in this? Tricky at the moment, also because of the, A, large displacement populations going backwards and forwards. Terrorism, again, now also um, being you know, com- coming up in Afghanistan, which is seen as a threat by the Taliban. And so it's, it's, it's tricky. It's yeah. tricky. It's currently not, I think the, you know, probably the most, um, in that sense, useful relationship. Um, but, you know, I think, look, Amina Mohammed, the deputy secretary general went a couple of days before us, which I thought was an important signal of political engagement that, that most senior woman in the UN, United Nations. Uh, and she also, aside from reiterating all those other messages, um, I, I thought it was very helpful to engage countries in the region, Islamic countries more than anything, to also uh, send those messages um, of condemning the ban to to the de facto authorities, which I thought was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, final question, most important question. Listeners who are hearing us talk right now, they want to do something to help the Afghan people, what can they do? How can they support your work? Well, that's great. Uh, I would say uh, www.savethechildren.org. There's lots there about the situation in Afghanistan. We put uh, updates there. I would also say, you know, support for us, uh, Save the Children really also works with grassroots advocates in the United States. We actually have a, a C4, a campaigning arm that has a lot of phenomenal, has hundreds of thousands of amazing supporters and volunteers who write to their congressmen and women. Um, they they fundraise for us. They they go on the streets um, um, in and and they they campaign on the behalf of, of children and girls in Afghanistan, but all over the world. So uh, yes, if you can and are willing to give us a donation for children in Afghanistan or in or any of the other kids uh, caught up in emergency crisis across the world, that'd be fantastic and is hugely appreciated and and helpful. But you can also uh, take action on kids' behalf. And and there's lots um, uh, about that on our website. That's great. Well, listen, I I want to say it again. I mean, Save the Children is an amazing organization. Uh, Your whole team is doing incredible work, incredibly brave, at times dangerous work. Uh, There is this acute crisis in Afghanistan right now, there are growing crises uh, in the Horn of Africa and other places, so this money is being spread thin. So if you're thinking, hey, maybe I'll donate some money to an organization like Save the Children this year, now's a better time to do it than uh, December uh, because Indeed. we really, really need it. So thank you again for doing the show uh, and for all your great work. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you guys so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks again to Yanti Srepto. Thanks again to uh, Mohammed bin Salman for for funding all of my favorite golf outings. Yeah, all those all those principled players on the Live Tour. Oh, these good folks over there. Elon Musk for and, uh, his uh, you know bringing you know, Andrew Tate back onto Twitter, but uh, censoring BBC documentaries. And listen, just stop taking work home, everybody. Get yeah. a little work life balance. <laughs> you won't have any classified issues. It'll be fine. Yeah, it's a good good rule in life. When you quit a job, don't take work with you. No, never. All right. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are Ben Rhodes and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are our sound engineers. 
Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. And thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.